Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. And once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'm looking forward to uh, to learning a little bit more about the founding generation. And today, you're going to be talking about one of my favorite among the founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson. And you know, it's important that we look at these people because when we believe that the Constitution should be interpreted according to the intent of the framers, then we need to know something about the framers and what they believed. And to say that the framers believed something is to presuppose that they were all of the same mind, and they weren't entirely. There were honest differences of opinion between, let's say, on the one hand, Thomas Jefferson versus Alexander Hamilton, or between John Jay and Patrick Henry and Sam Adams and some others, but there were some basic principles that united them, and a couple of these would be summarized in Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence, that we are entitled to independence by the laws of nature and of nature's God. In other words, there is a higher law than the law of man, the law of God, to which human law must conform. And the concept of God-given, unalienable rights, rights that government is powerless to interfere with, that's part of that concept. If we don't believe that there is a higher law than the law of man, then the law of the government is all there is. And if that's the case, then what possible justification can there ever be for calling a law unjust or for civil disobedience against an unjust law if the government made the law and there's no higher authority than the government, then by definition, that law has to be right. But Jefferson stands in marked contrast to that view, and I think in this regard at least, the framers would be of one mind in standing with him. But Jefferson is one of the more complex of the founding fathers. He certainly is an intelligent man, and on one occasion, that one of our presidents, thinking it might have been John Kennedy, said that he had never met in the White House with a more able group of men, and no one had ever had in history, except for one time when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. But I would say that John Adams was equally a scholar with Thomas Jefferson, I would say that Washington and others, well, maybe not the scholars that Jefferson were, had the practical intelligence that might have exceeded Jefferson's. I'd say Adams's scholarship was just as deep as Jefferson's and in many ways broader as well. He was interested in the Reformation thinkers and many other thinkers, well, as Jefferson's interest was more in the classical thinkers. But as I say, he was complex. Joseph Ellis wrote a book recently. It was titled American Sphinx about Thomas Jefferson and illustrates some of the seeming contradictions in Jefferson's life and Jefferson's thought and actions. It was Jefferson who paved the way for equality and paved the way for liberty for all, including slaves. 
when he wrote in the Declaration that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And yet he owned slaves. And unlike Washington, he did not free his slaves at his death. Jefferson was probably the leading founding father to call for limited government. And yet with the Louisiana Purchase, he just about doubled the size of the United States and did so in a manner that raised a few constitutional questions. Personally, I think the Louisiana Purchase can be justified on the treaty-making power that is entrusted to the federal government. The president can make treaties with the advice and consent of two-thirds of the Senate. And Jefferson had sent a delegation to Napoleon to buy this Louisiana territory. They went beyond the amount that Jefferson had authorized them to spend. But when they came back and informed Jefferson what they had done, Jefferson said, well, I'm not sure this is constitutional, but I'm glad we've done it. And we're going to have to go ahead with this despite the constitutional questions. And as I say, the Senate did approve the treaty and they made up the difference in the funds and so on. But Jefferson himself doubted the constitutionality of it and even thought that what we really needed to do to ratify the Louisiana Purchase was a constitutional amendment. Well, the Senate, and I think most of the nation, concluded that wasn't necessary. Jefferson called for a wall of separation between church and state. And yet, he authorized the holding of religious services in the House chamber and regularly attended those services himself. He was called a deist and sometimes even an atheist, incorrectly. And yet, he was a regular churchgoer and a student of the Bible. So, who was this Thomas Jefferson? Who, if we can say, would the real Thomas Jefferson stand up? Would there be more than one person standing up? Because Thomas Jefferson, you might say, is a number of different people combined into one, and he grows with time. This magnificent work, the Declaration of Independence, one of the most eloquent pieces of writing in all American history, and not just eloquent, but very profound in its legal and philosophical implications. Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence when he was 32 years of age. When he was president, well, he took the presidency at the age of 56, and then he became an elder statesman in his 70s and 80s. And so we certainly see a lot of growth in Jefferson during this period of time. And I think it's important, first of all, that we look at Jefferson's religious beliefs, because law is ultimately founded on morality, and morality has its roots in religion. So understanding what Jefferson believed about law and government, we need to first of all understand what he believed about religion. And while many will call him a deist, that is a person who believed in an absentee God, a God who created everything, but then retreated from the universe and just watches from a distance and doesn't actively intervene in human affairs anymore. 
I have never found, and nobody else has ever been able to show me, any statement of Jefferson anywhere in which he claimed to be a deist, or in which he even praised deism, or in fact in which he denied that he was a Christian. Now I qualify that to say that I don't believe you could call Jefferson a Christian in the orthodox sense of the term, but never did he deny being a Christian. In fact, when Jefferson was running for president in 1800, there were some questions raised about his religious faith. And, for example, a Dutch Reformed pastor in New York, the Reverend William Lynn, asked the question, does Jefferson go to church? How does he spend the Lord's Day? Is he known to worship with any denomination of Christians? And he said, let the first magistrate be a professed infidel, and infidels will surround him. Let him spread the spend, I'm sorry, spend the Sabbath in feasting, in visiting, receiving visits, riding abroad, never in going to church. And worship will become unfashionable. Infidelity will become the prattle from the highest to the lowest condition in life. Others raise questions like this. John Adams' wife, and Adams, of course, was a rival of Jefferson's at this time, but Abigail Adams joined the attack, and she charged that Jefferson was a deist, and she asked, can the placing at the head of the nation, two characters known to be deists, Jefferson and Burr, be productive of order, peace, and happiness? But others came to Jefferson's defense. Tunis Wardman wrote a pamphlet in which he said, the charge of deism is false, scandalous, and malicious. There is not a single passage in the notes on Virginia or in any of Jefferson's writings repugnant to Christianity, but the contrary, in every respect favorable to it. DeWitt Clinton also said, we have the strongest reasons to believe he is a Christian, and added, let me add that he has for a long time supported out of his own private revenues a worthy minister of the Christian church. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about Thomas Jefferson today, and Colonel, I guess I knew that uh, it's not uncommon for politicians to be questioned about their stances on certain things, but I had no idea there were so many questions about uh, Jefferson's uh, faith in God. Well, let me add this, that when you see that debate going on in 1800 about whether somebody like Jefferson, who some thought was a deist, should be elected president. There's a couple things I would observe about the debate. First of all, no one at this time questioned the propriety of inquiry into a presidential candidate's religious beliefs. In other words, what so many would say today, his religious beliefs are nobody else's business. Nobody at this time is arguing that. And secondly, nobody at this time was saying that 
it's okay to elect a deist as president. We have some who are saying Jefferson is a deist, and therefore he shouldn't be elected president. We have others saying, no, Jefferson isn't a deist, so it's okay to elect him president. Nobody is saying Jefferson is a deist, but let's elect him president anyway. In other words, the idea that one's religious beliefs are relevant to whether he should be holding public office, that doesn't seem to have been questioned by anyone in this founding generation, the generation in which the First Amendment was adopted. Now, here are some interesting facts about Jefferson's background. First of all, he is raised in the Church of England, that is, the Episcopal Church. In 1767, he accepted an office as the vestryman, that is, a church official, in the Episcopal Church. He signed a sworn statement at this time, saying that he accepted the doctrine of the Episcopal Church, which would have been Orthodox Christianity. In other words, if at that time he was not an Orthodox Christian, then he committed perjury when he signed that oath. Also, throughout his life, he had a friend, the pastor, a pastor by the name of Charles Clay. Clay was an Orthodox Calvinist Christian. Jefferson not only was a friend of his, but supported him and his ministry financially throughout his life. Late in life, Jefferson wrote to Clay and said, you have more insight into my religious beliefs and character than any other living person. And it's interesting to read what Clay says. Clay never even suggests that Jefferson was anything other than an Orthodox Christian. Now, in 1777, Jefferson becomes a primary organizer and a contributor to a church a church that was called the Calvinistic Reformed Church. And obviously a deist is not going to be supporting a church like this. Well, Jefferson does develop some doubts, though. And these doubts first surface in 1788, while Jefferson is in France, and there he is asked to serve as a godfather to the child of a close friend of his, and to be a godfather, you have to be in good standing in the church. And Jefferson responds to his friend that, I cannot serve as a godfather, because to be a godfather, I would have to swear that I accept the doctrine of the church. And he says, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons but one in essence, is a doctrine that I simply do not understand. And since I do not understand it, I cannot swear that I believe it. Now others, like Augustine, would probably say, I believe in order that I may understand. Jefferson would say, no, I have to understand first. And once I understand, then maybe I will believe. But notice, he only says he doesn't understand the doctrine. He doesn't say that he denies it. Now, as we move into the 1800s, he has some increasing doubts about the doctrine of the Trinity. He suggests that it is a logical and mathematical absurdity that three could be one, 
and one could be three. And therefore, in his writings in the early 1800s, he appears to reject the doctrine of the Trinity entirely and relies instead upon a strong rationalistic faith in whatever he believes in. As we see, he accepts it. He talks about three men that he regards as his trinity, and it doesn't mean that in the sense that they are gods, but Sir Francis Bacon is one of these, his emphasis on the role of reason in improving society. The second in his trinity is Sir Isaac Newton, from whom he develops the scientific method, and also Newton's idea that the world is governed by God-ordained laws. And third, John Locke. John Locke, with his idea that government exists by social contract and by God-given human rights, and John Locke, again, strongly Christian, although possibly not completely orthodox, particularly in his view of human nature and his understanding of original sin. But those are the ones that seem to influence Jefferson a great deal at this time, this very strong faith that he has in reason. For example, he writes, reason and free inquiry are the only effectual agents against error. I hope we have not labored in vain and that our experiment will still prove that men can be governed by reason. And he says further, every man's reason is his own rightful umpire. The principle with that of acquiescence in the will of the majority, will preserve us free and prosperous as long as they are sacredly observed. So a strong belief in the power of human reason, which leads him to doubt, in fact, probably reject the doctrine of the Trinity. And in rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity, he seems to reject also the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, and possibly even reject the idea that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. But he has a very strong faith in Jesus Christ in his teachings and as a man. For example, excuse me just a moment, for example, he, he writes of Jesus, his system of morality was the most benevolent and sublime, probably, that has ever been taught, and consequently more perfect than those of any of the ancient philosophers. He was the most innocent, the most benevolent, the most eloquent and sublime character that has ever been exhibited to man. However, he goes on to say that in keeping with some of the other religious liberals of his day, that Jesus' teachings of love your neighbor and love God and so on, forgive others, that these teachings were somewhat corrupted by the Apostle Paul, who converted them into the doctrine that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died a substitutionary atonement for the sin of the world, and that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he sees in his view, that Paul and some of the early church fathers have really perverted the true teachings of Jesus, and that Jesus himself 
didn't teach that at all. Well, also, though, we see that he does believe in a God who is actively involved in human affairs. In this way, you could possibly describe Jefferson as a Unitarian, at least during this period of his life, and as a Unitarian, one who believes the Bible, but who believes that the Bible does not teach a trinity, rather teaches monotheism. More after the break. are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, and we are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, learning today about uh, Thomas Jefferson. That's a name a lot of people are going to recognize, but Colonel, I'm learning a lot of things about Jefferson I did not know until you started talking about them. Well, let's look a little more at Jefferson, and let's look at his view of the Bible. Jefferson was a student of the Bible. And there are those who would tell you that he rejected the Bible. What he did, they'll say, is he produced his own version of the Bible, which they will call the Jefferson, the Jefferson Bible, that basically just had a few of the sayings of Jesus and stripped all of the miracles out of the Bible. This is simply inaccurate. First of all, yes, he did write a compilation of Bible verses, that he wrote two separate compilations. One was called The Philosophy of Jesus. The other was called The Life and Morals of Jesus. And in the first of these, he leaves out passages about the miracles. But in the second, The Life and Morals of Jesus, he does include some of the miracles there. But Jefferson never called this the Jefferson Bible, never called it a Bible. He thought of it as simply a compendium, or that is a summary of verses in the Bible that he recommended that people read. And especially he recommended this for the Indians to read. But anyway, the idea that this was to be a substitute for the Bible itself he never made any suggestion like this. Now, here's another interesting thing about the Bible. On one occasion, somebody said to Jefferson that he had studied the Bible and he didn't see any particular merit in it at all. Jefferson answered to him, then you have studied it to little purpose. But on another occasion, one of his... Biographer Samuel Cadaver writes, His beautiful young daughter Maria, a brilliant and gifted girl whose aim in life had been to be worthy of her father, fell gravely ill. In the spring, the anxious father hurried to Monticello to be at her bedside. He came just in time. Maria's death at 26 was a merciless blow to her father. Jefferson, now 61, and with only one surviving child, was shaken as he had not been since his wife's death. For hours after the young woman died, the stricken president stayed in his room 
with a Bible in his hand. Once again, he was alone with his soul in the presence of death. Jefferson, we can't really say for sure what his views of the Bible were. Certainly, he believed it contained much wisdom that is worthy of study. Whether he would believe that it was the work of simply wise men, or whether he believed that there was some divine inspiration, we really can't say. Jefferson was a strong believer in religious liberty, and we see that, for example, in the letter that he wrote to the Danbury Baptists in 1801, and in this letter, when he's assuring the Danbury Baptists that they have nothing to fear from this new federal government, he basically says, there is a wall of separation that protects you from them. Notice Jefferson is saying the wall of separation protects the church from the state. He is not saying it protects the state from the church, although he would probably believe that as well although that's the way the phrase is commonly used today. But when Jefferson speaks of this wall of separation, very probably he derives this thought from Roger Williams, the Baptist preacher in Rhode Island, who spoke about the need of a wall to separate the garden of the church from the thorns of the world, again, protecting the church. But as a believer in religious liberty, we need to remember that he is not the author of the First Amendment. In fact, when the Constitution was drafted in 1787, and when the Bill of Rights was drafted in 1789, Jefferson was not even in the country. He was across the ocean serving as ambassador to France. And to take this statement of his some 14 years after the writing of the Constitution by somebody who wasn't even there, as though this is the definitive statement of what the Constitution means, is just plain sloppy scholarship. Frankly, if one of my con law students were to do something like that on a term paper, they'd get an F. But that's the way modern liberals have used that phrase, as though it is the definitive interpretation of the First Amendment. Jefferson, though, was a strong believer in religious liberty, and Part of the reason he believes in religious liberty is that he thought that what one believes really has no impact on the rest of the world. In fact, as he wrote on one occasion, our rulers have no authority over such natural rights, only as we have submitted to them in a social compact. The rights of conscience we never submitted, we could not submit. We are answerable for them to our God. The legitimate powers of government extend only to such acts as are injurious to others. Now listen to this statement. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. But that Dutch Reformed critic of Jefferson, the Reverend William Lim, responded to that statement and his response is worthy of considering. Let my neighbor persuade himself that there is no God, and he will soon peck my pocket and break not only my leg, but my neck. If there be no God, there is no law, no future account. 
Government then is the ordinance of man only, and we cannot be subject for conscience sake. I think Reverend Lynn has a very good point there that what we believe about religion affects what we believe about law and morality. And therefore, it is of a great deal of importance and a very worthy subject of inquiry. Jefferson, though, had no objection to the printing of Bibles to be distributed among the Indian tribes. He had no objection to having religious services held in the chambers of the House of Representatives and regularly attended those services himself. It seems that a lot of Jefferson's objection concerning an establishment of religion was that the question about religious establishments was reserved to the states. And if the states wanted to have an establishment of religion, in Jefferson's view, they were free to do so. He might not have wanted it, but that was up to the states. And the federal government had no authority to interfere with these state establishments of religion. Now, it's interesting that in the 1820s, 1821, he rejoins the Episcopal Church and is active in it. He makes no further statements from 1821 to 1826 about his religious views, whether he had returned to a more orthodox view of Christianity, or whether he had simply decided that he wanted to be part of the church, even though he might not have agreed with all its doctrines. We have no way of knowing. It's also around this time period that he and his old friend, who had turned enemy John Adams, renew their friendship. And as they renew their friendship, their correspondence on these matters is very interesting. Quite frankly, what Adams writes is, I think, a lot more profound and revealing than the things Jefferson writes at this time. But during these years, 1821 to 26, he keeps his doubts to himself. Relatives of his said during that period of time that they often found him alone in his study reading the Bible. What he thought of it, again, we simply do not know. But he does say in 1816, I am a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus, very different from the Platonists who call me infidel and themselves preachers of the gospel. Well, they draw all their characteristic dogmas from what his author never said nor saw. He is saying, I am a real Christian. But what he means by that is one who simply follows the teachings of Jesus to love one another and love God, rather than one who believes the doctrines of the Christian church. So again, I think we'll have to say that in those last years, his views are a mystery. But now let's look at his political thoughts after the break.
once again, we are so glad you are with us today on Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you've given us some real insights into Thomas Jefferson's religious point of view. Let's talk a little bit about his uh, political thinking. Jefferson believed that government was necessary and believing government is necessary because people have sinful natures and with sinful natures, they cannot be trusted to govern themselves. But he also believed that those who run the government have a sinful nature as well. And therefore they cannot be trusted with absolute power. In his first inaugural address, he said, sometimes it is said that man cannot be trusted with the government of himself. Can he then be trusted with the government of others? Or have we found angels in the forms of kings to govern him? Let history answer this question. And the answer clearly is no, that those who run the government have sinful nature like the rest of us, and therefore they cannot be trusted with too much power. In his Kentucky Resolves, he makes the statement, In questions of power, then, let no more be said of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief with the chains of the Constitution. What he meant by this was that the Constitution is like chains that bind down the sinful nature of man. They bind down government officials, preventing them from abusing their power and become tyrants. I recall one time I participated in a legislative hearing in the state of Alabama, and it was on whether or not we needed a new constitution in Alabama, one that would give the state of Alabama, the state government, much more power than it currently had. I was opposed to this, and the proposals were defeated. But those who were in favor of it, most of them were state employees, those who were in favor of it, one of the things they commonly said was, the problem with Alabamans is they don't trust their government enough. I don't know, I'm hearing a rumbling off in the distance. I think that's Thomas Jefferson turning over in his grave. <laughs> Let no more be said of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief with the chains of the Constitution. He believed in the laws of nature and of nature's God, concept that he may well have derived from Blackstone, who used that terminology repeatedly, but then so, so did John Locke. He also believed in the concept of human equality. However, again, the practical working out of equality was limited in his mind. As I said, he was personally opposed to slavery, and yet he owned slaves, and he never tried to free them. Washington likewise was opposed to slavery, and he did free his slaves on his death. He was also a believer in God-given, unalienable rights. That's a concept that he may well have derived from John Locke, who believed that God had endowed man with these unalienable rights, rights that he described as life, liberty, and property. Jefferson took that phrase and expanded it to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. 
not because he didn't believe in property, he certainly did, but rather pursuit of happiness would include property, but would be broader than that. And Jefferson, like the other framers, would have believed very strongly that the idea of liberty and the idea of happiness can be achieved only through the pursuit of virtue. By pursuing happiness, they didn't mean the way we'd use the term today. Liberty means do whatever we want, and happiness means whatever depraved thing we might think of. Rather to them, the pursuit of happiness meant pursuit of those things that would produce lasting happiness, produce financial independence, produce good moral standards, produce a good relationship in family and in the community. That was the pursuit of happiness. What modern man means today by pursuit of happiness, Jefferson and the other founders would have said, that is a surefire formula for pursuit of memory and for pursuit of ultimate enslavement. Anyway, so he wanted limited government and in Washington's cabinet, we find that there were sharp divisions between, on the one hand, Alexander Hamilton, who wanted the powers delegated to the federal government of the Constitution interpreted broadly, versus Jefferson, who wanted those powers interpreted more narrowly, and James Madison, sort of in the middle, but perhaps at least initially leaning a little bit toward Jefferson. But he was a strong advocate of constitutional restraint and a strong advocate of interpreting the Constitution strictly as the framers would have it interpreted. He wrote on one occasion that in every question of Constitution interpretation, let us carry ourselves back to the views of the framers and ask whether our interpretation is in accordance with theirs. Jefferson was not a delegate to the convention, but he was president at a time when a lot of the key constitutional decisions were made. And Jefferson and Chief Justice John Marshall, who was a distant relative of his, but they didn't really like each other much and didn't agree on much, they were often very much at odds on constitutional interpretation. But another occasion, he said that the seeds of the dissolution of our republic lay in the federal judiciary because he says if the judiciary is free to interpret the Constitution in whatever way they want to interpret it, they're free to destroy the country. He said on one occasion that if judges are not bound by the strict interpretation of the Constitution as the framers intended it, then the Constitution is simply a ball of wax in their hands. I've heard some call it a silly putty constitution, and that pretty well describes what Jefferson's view would have been. He didn't really even believe in the power of judicial review. He didn't think that judges had the power to declare acts of Congress unconstitutional. He felt that that was giving judges more power than the Constitution really says that they have. That could be argued either way when we see that they have jurisdiction over all cases arising under the Constitution and laws of the United States. You could argue that that means they have the power to interpret the Constitution. 
and the power to strike down laws as unconstitutional. But you can also see where that could lead to tyranny and why very sound thinking constitutionalists like Jefferson would reject that idea. He also believes strongly in the power of interposition, that is the power of lower government officials to resist the power and the abuses of power of those who are above them. Like, for example, Thomas Aquinas said, Stephen Langdon with the Magna Carta and the Declaration of Independence itself. Now, Jefferson died on July 4th of 1826, exactly 50 years after the Declaration of Independence and that first Independence Day. John Adams, his early friend and later enemy and then friend once again, died on the same day, three hours afterward. In fact, John Adams had been to an Independence Day celebration, and he was asked to give a speech, and he refused. He was 90 at the time, and asked to give a toast, and he said, Independence forever. Asked if he would add to that. He said not a word. And then several hours later in the evening, as he lay dying, his last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives, unaware that Jefferson had died three hours earlier. These two constitutional giants dying on the 50th, 4th of July. It represents not just the death of two presidents. It represents the death of an era, the founding era of the nation. And yet, I certainly hope we can say that the principles that Jefferson and Adams stood for, a constitution to be interpreted according to the intent of its framers in giving us this free republic, that those principles still apply today, and that it is our responsibility as citizens today to defend and restore the old constitutional republic if freedom is to survive.